Okay, good morning, everyone. Before we begin, your reminder to procure for yourself Martin Chemnitz in Caridion, Word, Sacrament, and Ministry. Uh, you'll want to order that right away just in case there is some kind of delay, but I don't think there will be. In fact, last I checked Amazon, there was some in stock at Amazon, so you should be able to get that relatively quickly. But we will, uh, we will end this text like a thief in the night. You don't know when it's coming. <laughs> 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 and then the, the next week we're on to Martin Chemnitz. So you want to be prepared. All right. We left off on the chapter, The End of the World as We Know It. We're going to pick back up at page 216. And I'll give us some context, run us back up into the argument. But before I do that, let's have an invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, in this chapter, uh, the end of the world as we know it, we've been looking at eschatology, or the study of the last things. And if you just flip to page 211 for one moment, you'll see the subheading under which we presently are. 1,000 years of what? And there in bullet point format for you are the three main divisions, premillennialism, postmillennialism, and amillennialism. And of course, the millennium having to do with that thousand years referenced in Revelation chapter 20. Now, what Wolfmuller did in the pages that follow for us is he took us on a biblical tour through other usages within the scriptures of the language a thousand years. And we found that it is almost always, if not always, symbolic. So why would it be different in Revelation? Of course, an even tighter case can be made in terms of Revelation itself. What numbers in Revelation precisely are literal or without symbolic import? Good luck. The second part, then, was... You know, Wolf Mueller identified not only the thousand years, but that the thousand years are said in Revelation 20 to be a binding of Satan. So that's the second question we were looking at last week. And that question is introduced by Wolf Mueller in his argument in, on page 215. There at the top he says, our second question for Revelation 20 is this. What does the rest of the Bible say about the binding of the devil? And as we were marching along through various texts with Wolfmuller, what we were seeing is that Jesus talks about the binding of the strong man taking place with his own ministry. So as Christ comes, he is binding the strong man in order to plunder his house. He is binding Satan in order to plunder us from out of Satan's kingdom. And we see in many and various ways, I like how Wolfmuller put it, that Jesus is like a demon magnet. 
as you're reading the scriptures, you, you see references to demons and demonic activity, but nothing like that which comes in the ministry of Jesus. Even after the apostles, while it's still there, I mean, in the age of the apostles, while it's still there, it's quite minimal relative to Jesus' own ministry, where they seem to be on every other page, on every other moment, he's somehow battling with the demons. And he gives to the 70, of course, to cast out demons, and they marvel. Uh, And Jesus says, don't marvel that you have authority over unclean spirits. Marvel that your names are written in the book of life. So we see throughout Jesus' ministry a binding of the strong man and his forces, which would make then the thousand years of Revelation 20 beginning at the ministry of Jesus and if you and you know if you want to put a really fine point on it as at his ascension into heaven and his enthronement in the heavenly realm where now sitting on the very throne of God is this man Jesus Christ to whom all authority in heaven and on earth have been given so that's what we've been doing then on page 215 and following is looking at what the rest of the Bible has to say about the binding of the devil. And we left off over on page 216 down at the bottom. Wolf Mueller is going to quote from us verses 7 and 8 of Hebrews chapter 2. Wolf Mueller writes, Hebrews 2 wonderfully anticipates this objection, quoting Psalm 8 the author notes, and remember what's in the backdrop here, the biblical theology versus the what Wolfmuller calls look-aroundism. So the Bible, the Bible clearly indicates that at the coming of Jesus, Satan has been bound and his forces significantly hampered. And what's the immediate comeback? Look around. The world's a mess. Clearly Satan isn't bound. Okay, so that's the objection he's mentioning here. Hebrews 2 wonderfully anticipates this objection. Quoting Psalm 8, the author notes, You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, He left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. So there's the biblical answer to look aroundism is we can't say, oh, well, he's failed to bind the devil because look around. No, the scriptures indeed say he has bound the devil. And as to the objection, look around, the author of Hebrews says, look, at present we don't yet see everything in subjection. At present we don't yet see that the devil is bound, but nonetheless we ought to know he is. Now I would argue that, and I don't know if Wolfmuller goes here or not, but I would actually argue that if you're paying attention to a biblical history, it's quite obvious that the devil has been bound. Why? The devil is bound so that the nations may not be deceived any longer. Remember that from Revelation 20? How can you look around and know that the devil has been bound? Because the gospel goes forth throughout the entire world. If you're following the Old Testament history, the gospel is in Israel 
and is slowly spread around, microscopically spread around um, to neighbors, Gentiles, various other regions. We can see some of the very minor ways in which it's present, even in an event like the Magi suddenly appearing. Uh, Probably they became aware of this via Daniel, but who knows. So we do see some spread of the gospel, but it's localized always or concentrated always within the nation state of Israel. What happens since Christ's death and resurrection and ascension? It's exploded. Immediately the gospel went throughout the known world and it has continued through all ages to go and be preached to every nation. There's Christians in every nation. And that is indicative of the fact that the devil has been bound and the nations are no longer being deceived. Christianity and the gospel are no longer localized in the nation state of Israel. They're widespread and all around. Make sense? So that would be a way in which you can combat the look-aroundism with, well, yeah, look around. The fact that the gospel has free course is pretty definitive evidence that something massive has changed from a historical perspective. Okay, so let's see what Wolfmuller has to say. And again, I think he's wise to quote Hebrews 2 here. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to Christ. It doesn't mean that it isn't in subjection to him. It is, we just don't see it yet. He's working in his own specific ways. Wolfmuller comments, Everything is subject to Jesus. All things are under his control. The universe is under his feet. But notice, at present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. We see destruction. We see death. We see darkness and trouble. What we see does indeed look like we are living in the devil's kingdom. But this is not true. Jesus, by his death, has destroyed him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. The disorder and turmoil of this world are more of the devil's lies to tempt us to unbelief and despair. The scriptures give us the good news that the Lamb of God, our Jesus, sits on the throne. The one who died for us now rules and reigns for us. The one who did not spare his life now orders this world for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Jesus triumphed over the devil and the demons in his death, making a public spectacle of them. Colossians 2, 13 through 15. And I can't remember where I first came across or read this, but it's, an, it's a kind of visual that has always stuck with me. We know that Christ came to destroy the one who has the power of death. And we know that that fulfills the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel proclamation of Genesis 3.15, that the offspring of the woman would crush the serpent's head. So when precisely does he undo the devil's works of sin and death? Well, via his own death and resurrection. That is precisely the moment at which which he crushes the serpent's head, should be parallel to the binding. Now, has anyone ever had the fortune or misfortune of stepping on a snake's head? 
What do you, what, there's one, yeah, forest service, probably. Now, when you stepped on its head, did its body just instantly go limp? No, probably not. Yeah, when you step on the snake's head, even though it's dead, defeated, that body and tail go lashing out more vigorously and more wildly than at any time prior. And I think that that's precisely what we see is not Satan's power, but the death throes. You go, yeah, well, it looks worse than ever. Yet, well, that snake thrashes more wildly than ever in its death throes than it ever did when it was alive. And so what we're seeing today are Satan's death throes. We're seeing the serpent wriggling and slamming things about, and we're mistaking that for his power. It's not his power. It's precisely his demise. So that can give you a good visual uh, for this theology uh, via Genesis 3. All right, that brings to a conclusion then this uh, second question and Wolfmuller's answer regarding what does the rest of the Bible say about the binding of the devil. Now, he's going to tie it all together for us right there where we left off in the middle of page 217. But before he does, any questions, comments, observations that you have in regard to these things? Up front, please. Does this mean, because when Job and Job, Satan is, comes up to God and says, have you seen, you know, he offers Job up. So does that mean he's not allowed up there at all after the binding? Yes. Well, yes, exactly. So, yeah. Okay, Revelation 12 is the chapter you want to go to for this. When, in fact, oh, the one day I don't bring my Bible. <laughs> And let's go there. Let's, let's go there real quick, because this is worthwhile. At Revelation 12, we'll have an opportunity to tie this into a larger cosmology. Revelation 12, by the way, is a Christmas text. That's how it begins. I preached it as a Christmas sermon once. I'm going to do it again because it's just so much fun and nobody thinks of it like this. Um, This is a little not to the point, but look at chapter 12, verse 1. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. 
and the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. So you have a pregnant woman who's going to give birth. The dragon wants to devour the child. The child's to rule over the nations, and the child is swept up to the very throne of God to, in fact, rule not only the nations, but also the heavens and the earth. So this is Christmas via Revelation, and it's a, it's a beautiful kind of view because we think of the nativity scene with the manger and the ox and donkey and the shepherds and, you know... But if you are looking down at it from a heavenly perspective, you see a woman with a crown of 12 stars, the moon under her feet, and you see a great dragon sneaking up to that nativity scene. Where does the woman put her child? A feeding trough where beasts come and eat. Who's the great beast who's come there to devour? Yeah. Puts a different take on the Christmas story, doesn't it? That was a different one, I think. Yeah, because I think so. I think that was a different sermon. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Well, because Christmas Day is, yeah, Christmas is not the, um, I know we all kind of love the sentimentality of Christmas and the wholesomeness of Christmas, the tenderness and um, familial sense of Christmas. And I wouldn't take anything away from that. I would say that all that's exactly right, but that's not the only story, nor is it necessarily even the biblical emphasis, because the when the angels, remember when Jesus is born and the angels come to the shepherds by night, do you remember how the angels are described as the, I think it's like the Platos Stratia, the army of God? We think, when we hear it translated in English as the heavenly host, we think, oh, I bet they brought Christmas cookies. But I bet a good number of them were wearing aprons and they were singing Christmas carols. Uh, yeah, no. Uh, this is the whole army of God singing in triumph because the champion has come. The David who is going to defeat the Goliath has come. The little boy who is going to slay the dragon has come. And he's going to do so with his wooden sword, with his cross. It's beautiful. And so they're singing because this is a cosmic act of war that God has become flesh. I mean, think of it if you're Satan. Here you are. You got the whole world. The whole world's in your hands. You're singing that song to yourself all the time. And then here comes this God in this little baby. Is that a, is that a kindly act? Is that warm and fuzzy? That is an invasion. That's what that is. And the heavenly host, that is to say the heavenly army, the stratia, is all there singing boldly and proclaiming what's happening. Um, Yeah, that's a cosmic act of war. So Christmas is uh, (laughs) the incarnation, and the incarnation is war against Satan. And and that's what we see also here in Revelation 12, that the dragon is there because this child who is born of this cosmic woman uh, is an enemy and a threat. He's going to rule over everything that that the dragon presently rules over. We still haven't got to your question. We'll get there. Yeah, please. Uh, I'm not sure if we're supposed to know what the angels knew, but if they're singing in triumph... Was it just because they loved and trusted in God so much that they knew that this was going to be the defeat of Satan, and Satan was so prideful and full of himself that he couldn't even see what was happening because, I mean, 
God doesn't tell everybody what he's going to do, but for the angels that loved and trusted him, they knew. Yeah. And for the demons and Satan who were feeling threatened, they didn't see it coming. I mean, he knew it was coming, but I don't know. How, how do yeah, we I think, think the, about that? I think the angels all knew. They might not have known the exact like date or time. I mean, I don't know that we have information in regard to that. But yeah, the angels knew that, um, that the Lord Jesus was invading the, the, the physical cosmos, so to speak, and that this was the end of the devil, uh, ultimately. And we're going to see how Revelation takes that, because it, it, you can tell how, I mean, how differently Revelation 12 tells the narrative of Christ from what we're accustomed to. Um, and then where it goes, because the whole point of Revelation 12 is to show that Christ's ascension into heaven as the victor is the critical moment. Because what unfolds then is heaven is emptied of evil. They're all thrown down and limited, bound to earth. That's the other binding of Satan, bound to earth, not up to heaven. That's Now I'm getting to your answer. But then it's common knowledge that if they've been thrown out of heaven, where else can they be thrown out of? Earth. And that's the next step. That's why we're in the last days. Is the, the war has already been fought and determined. We still have phase two of the war, but we already know how it's going to go. Yeah. I was just sharing with Barry yesterday that I had new insight into the battle hymn of the Republic. Oh. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He's trampling out the vintage where mm. the graves of wrath are stored uh-huh. with evil. Uh-huh. He has right. loosed the fateful lightning with his terrible swift sword. Mm. The sword is the sword of this, you know, the, yeah. his yeah. word. And then his truth is marching on. Mm-hmm. So the whole song is glory, glory, hallelujah. His truth is marching on. Mm. And each stanza goes on to tell a little more. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, exactly. That's reminiscent of Revelation 19, the rider on the white horse. This is the Christ we we desperately need because it's the biblical Christ. The Christ of Revelation is really what we need. It's the medicine for our souls because we've been sold this Birkenstock, hemp robe wearing Jesus with braids and flowers in his hair who's, you know, maybe been... uh, eating a little of the cannabis as well as weaving it into clothes for his friends and he's just totally peaced out and passive and uh, you know, Jesus the hippie Jesus which you just if, you've, if you really read the New Testament you don't find like at all <laughs> but then if you read Revelation it's just pure medicine so if you're looking at 1911 um, so look at um, the image here of Christ returning. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Not my Jesus. My Jesus would never make war. About that. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, with which to strike down the nations. Uh, 
and he will rule them with a rod of iron. Ah, what did we just hear in Revelation 12? Same thing. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so on. But reminiscent imagery, to be sure. And and a view of Jesus we most certainly need. Because Jesus is not wringing his hands up in heaven on the heavenly throne going, Oh dear, I just saw the headlines this morning and I don't know what I'm going to do. Angels, come, let's have a council and figure out how we're going to adjust. No, no. Everything is well in hand, and uh, he is also going to be then a man of action, and he will determine precisely when that action takes place. Okay, so back to Revelation 12 and to the, the cosmology that um, you know really can show us uh, maybe a little bit wider frame for the eschatology we're looking at in Wolfmuller. And that is just to pick up at chapter 12, verse 7. Now, war arose in heaven. Of course, I love this because we all think of like heaven as, a, again, in the same way we have hippie Jesus, we have hippie heaven, where it's just puppy dogs and sunshine or an endless sea of clouds and you're handed your harp and everlasting boredom. I mean, this is the image of Satan and the, Im- I mean, the image of heaven and the image of Jesus that Satan would catechize us into. You know, maybe you'll find hippie Jesus walking on the clouds. You won't remember who you are. And on and on it goes. Anyway, that's not the case. Heaven itself has had war. This is, by the way, why the scriptures always say not just a new earth, but a new heavens and a new earth. Because the heavens are, I mean, understand me, generally, every bit is tainted with sin as the earth is tainted with sin. Because Satan had his abode and dwelling and um, was along with all the fallen angels, and they were allowed in heaven as well as down here on earth. And so it's not like heaven is this pristine, untainted place. There's been sin there. There's been conflict there. There has, in fact, been war there. Right. So that'll adjust your, your thinking then. Um, and really, you'll see why we need a new heavens as well as a new earth. So verse 7, now a war rose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. Um, what's the event that causes this war to arise? That's back in verse 5. The woman gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. That's heaven. That's what precipitates this. That's why in verse 7, a war arises in heaven. So Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. All right, keep a finger right there. So even in this sense, Satan is bound at the ascension of Jesus. He can no longer enter the heavenly places. So his domain has been cut in half, if you will. He can't go up into heaven anymore. His domain is simply the earth, which also means he doesn't have the ear of God in the least part. 
why would he have the ear of God in the first part? So Satan, Satana, means accuser. So one could think of him anachronistically as a prosecuting attorney. And insofar as he cites the law against us, he has a case and he has God's ear. God has to answer that. And he has to answer it in such a way that he's just. But of course, the trick up his sleeve is he wants to not only be just, but also the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Not only just, but gracious. And so his justice will be fulfilled in the very way that his grace will be poured out on all sinners. And that's the cross of his son. That's the genius of God. So there is a time. But after that cross has been complete and God's justice is satisfied and his grace has gone forth out to the whole world and that son rises from the grave and ascends into heaven and sits enthroned, now what place does the accuser, the prosecuting attorney, if you will, have in heaven? Zero. Because every accusation has been rendered null and void by the blood of Jesus. So now he does not have God's ear. There is no validity to what he's saying whatsoever. And that, of course, all precipitates and, in a sense, flows from what comes next. So back to verse 10 and following. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. So already this kingdom and reign exist at the moment of Christ's ascension. John continues, For the accuser, that's Satan, of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. Well, not anymore. <laughs> he once did, and that's Job, for example. And um, uh, Joshua, when the temple's being rebuilt, I think it's in Zechariah, I can't remember if that's exactly right, but when the temple's being rebuilt, Satan accuses uh, Joshua uh, of being um, sinful. And so Christ comes and clothes Joshua in beautiful garments clothing him literally in the righteousness of Christ so that the priesthood and the temple worship can be reestablished after, of course, it's been destroyed and then it's been rebuilt in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. So in order to reinstantiate the temple, the priesthood, the sacrifices, Joshua, the first new high priest, who, by the way, of course, shares the name with Jesus, uh, has to be clothed in white garments. And Satan is the one there accusing how his garments are filthy and he is unworthy to be a priest and unworthy to offer the sacrifices. So we see this, in other words, um, in the scriptures at various points. All right, so he who has been accusing the brothers has been cast down. He who was accusing them day and night before our God. Verse 11, and they have namely the brothers, our brothers, our fellow Christians, and they have conquered him, who? The dragon, the ancient serpent. And how have we conquered him? By the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. So the blood of the lamb, obviously God is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. It's the blood of the lamb by which we are cleansed and the power of of this of the devil 
the dragon, the serpent, is at an end by the blood of the Lamb. And then by the word of our testimony, John continues, For they loved not their lives even unto death. And that's the, you know, that, that of course is the gambit. Satan says, okay, you love God, well then, what if that costs you your life or anything underneath that, anything less than that? To remain faithful unto death is to receive the crown of life. So, okay, verse 12, therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. So that's why heaven is now a place of peace and rest when we die and go there and the saints are there. But heaven itself has experienced its sin, its warfare, its drama, uh, its own unique history parallel to our history and in large respect intertwined. But now comes a time for heavenly rejoicing. Rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. So there's the, there's the serpent thrashing around. He's come down in great wrath. He knows his time is short. And that the fact that he lost the battle in heaven, Michael and the archangels beat him and his defiled angels, that he knows that that's that. I mean, wh- how's it going to go on earth? No different. He's just going to have all the... It, primarily, why, and why I thought it was justified to read that section out of Revelation 19 is notice that it's not Christ per se who kicks him out of heaven, but who? Michael and the other angels. Why? Because that's their realm, properly speaking. It's the angelic realm, properly speaking. And so it's up to them to remove Satan. Now, when he comes down to our realm, who is it going to be up to? To remove him. Well, Christ charging into battle. Why? Because Christ is true man. And we, the saints, in those white linens, following him. Because this is our domain. And so you have already had the cleansing and purging of heaven by the heavenly beings. And you're going to have the cleansing and purging of earth next by the earthly beings. And then it's all going to be made new, a new heavens and a new earth. But you see how that works, and you see the symmetry, and you see how God works through means, and you see how it's not just Jesus waving a magic wand and making all this happen. It's going to be those who have been given dominion over the realms doing, the, doing their job. So then the devil's thrashing around from that time forward, and that's what we see. But this isn't strength that he's come down in wrath and that he's thrashing around. It's weakness. And that's revealed, of course, in the fact that he's kicked out of heaven, but also then that he knows that his time is short. That's it. He knows that he's already lost. He's just going to do as much damage as he can before he goes. That's desperation. Okay, well, I think we can stop there for our purposes, although the section really doesn't end until the close of the chapter. Any, any questions or comments on that? I know that that was quite the digression, but it does at least frame, and I think also serves via a, a complete biblical narrative to show you that the binding of Satan has already taken place, and the triumph is already assured, and Christ sits in authority, and that's unquestionable. 
and everything, even though we don't see it, as the author of Hebrews says, it doesn't mean it isn't real and it isn't happening. And I would argue in many ways you can, in fact, see it. That's why the author of Hebrews says, I think, not everything. Yeah, at present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. He's not saying we don't see anything in subjection to him. Even something so simple as Christians, we are subjected to him. And so we can already see that. It's just that we don't see everything in subjection to him as of yet requiring faith. This probably shouldn't even be asked, but I sometimes wonder what the purpose of all the other planets in the solar system is. You know, we know God created it all, but we know nothing. We just think of heaven and earth and God and Satan. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I have two different thoughts. I have... I have um, the wild speculative thought that the and just take it for that that the grain of truth in mormonism is that god has created an expansive cosmos that is ultimately given to man ultimately so i'm not saying you'll be assigned your one particular planet that you'll become a god that you'll have like seven wives and you know children and you'll populate people and they'll all grow up to be gods i mean all that's the mormon nonsense and it is it's complete rubbish and nonsense but the grain of truth hidden therein that and again this is a bit speculative okay so take it for what it's worth but the grain of truth given therein is that god gives to us the cosmos and we see that abundance, and I think that there's good indication that, like, well, gee, what are we going to do for all eternity? I don't know. How about explore the entire known creation that God has given to us and delight in all the mystery and majesty of our Creator? I mean, could you do that? I think I could sign up for that. Sounds like fun. All right, but now what's not speculative? What's right from the mouth of the Lord? Why there are so many billions of solar systems and galaxies and planets and this complete expanse? Jesus says that all this is given to us as signs. And of course, atheists point out, you know, there's that atheist meme, you know, you mean God did all this just to have a personal relationship with you, you know, this little insignificant speck of dust, to which Christianity just responds, yes. And in fact, that's the exact purpose of it, to see how God, I mean, it's, who is man, O Lord, that you are mindful of him? Remember that psalm and that reflection? And yet we see that God is mindful of us in such an astonishing and mind-boggling way that he creates all of these billions of things out there and this immense time and space just for us and as signs unto us. Chief of which, for my mileage, is that it's it's a sign of his extravagant love for man. Again, there's no merit or worthiness in us that he should look upon us and create such a marvelous creation around us or make man the crown of such an unfathomable creation. But he does, and he creates it, and he gives it, and it's lavish, and it's never-ending. I mean, how long could you, you personally, just explore the known physical universe? Everything we know says, for all intents and purposes, infinitely. And God's like... So you have a hard time believing that I could give you eternal life. You have a hard time believing that I could give you eternal meaning and purpose and joy and things to do. I mean, this is the way in which I think the cosmos are signs to us also. Now, of course, Jesus points out we have specific things that we notice too, like uh, solar and lunar eclipses and um, 
asteroids or falling stars and other signs or marvels. His birth was announced by such a marvel. We don't know the nature of it, but the star, the miraculous star that led the Magi to him, etc. So all of these can work for signs and wonders in very specific and narrow sense, but I think they also work as signs and wonders in a wider and more cosmic sense, that this is who our God is. And whether or not we ultimately explore and or inherit all of those, they are nonetheless designed there by God for our purpose, for our delight, for our knowledge of him. And none of that latter part that I said is speculative whatsoever. So even if we don't go there, we still enjoy it uh, in the new heavens and the new earth. Okay, kind of give you an answer. Was there another question or comment? There's one. Okay, uh, so on the subject of the existence of evil, um, if we're talking about the binding of the devil, could we say then that the devil being bound, evil exists, but it is but it is bound? So, in other words, um, we're talking about uh, the devil in the death throes and throwing a fit and and the lie of disorder the disorder isn't there it's an illusion it's a it's a lie told right. by the devil right yeah so the lie was was already in place before the serpent's head was was smashed down maybe we could okay. would that be something we would be correct yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, the, the devil's always been bluffing. Yeah. And, the, and the other thing that, you know, this is where Luther's so good, because uh, I think bondage of the will is where he does this the best. Because if God is God, and if God determines something just of himself... There's no such thing as a contingency. There's no such way of changing or altering that. So whatever it is the devil is doing is necessarily serving God's purposes. So Luther just says this shorthand as the devil is God's devil. And it's a great way of handling it. It just means the devil is God's servant. So, oh, look, he's making a mess over there. How is anyone ever going to... Nobody can put this Humpty Dumpty together again. And God's just up there, like, smiling. Like, yeah, that's according to plan. And I set the exact limits and bounds. And Satan thinks he's thwarting me in this way. But in fact, he's... And we can see the way that the devil, that God uses the devil um, to catechize the church, to lead the church into prayer. The devil's persecutions of the church cause it to flourish and grow numerically. So the devil can lose or lose. He can sit and be passive and lose as God marches along doing his business, or he can be actively against it and antagonistic only to find himself serving God's purposes and thus advancing the kingdom. We also have these promises, and this is another indicator that the devil is already bound and that his power limited, because Peter says to us, resist the devil and he will flee from you. I mean, this great dragon, this ancient serpent of old, this devourer of men, this one who has the power of death in his hands, will flee from you. That's what Peter says. So that's the power given to God's saints. 
I think C.S. Lewis in the Screwtape Letters has a wonderful reflection on this, where he, 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 I, he's telling, like, Wormwood, the older devil, I think, is telling Wormwood, like, uh, don't you dare show the patient, you know, this man they're trying to deceive and lead into hell, don't you dare show the patient the church as it really is. Show the church only as it appears on earth. Show it in its frailty and failures and sins and contradictions. But don't ever let him glimpse the reality of the church in its, with its fearsome banners <laughs> and unfurled garments of light and uh, marching as an indestructible army against us. And it's just kind of a fun reflection. I'm paraphrasing it. He does it much better. But it's a fun reflection on the true nature of the church over and against what we kind of see with our eyes and experience. Um, The true church is in war and is conquering and is victorious. And in this sense, then, already is reigning with Christ. Is Christ victorious? Absolutely. Then are Christians victorious? Absolutely. If he's reigning, then we are also reigning with him. So these are things that we can uh, grab a hold of as well from the scriptures and and comfort and strengthen ourselves with. It it strikes me that the difference between an orthodox Christianity and, say, New Age thought would be that New Age thought would say something like along the lines of uh, evil doesn't exist. And Orthodox Christianity would say, well, sort of, evil exists, but evil has been bound by Christ. So that if you keep your eye on Christ, then you see the order that exists. And if you keep your eye on the devil, then you will be bound in fear yourself. And and some, that, somehow that troubles me, that, that it could be so close that it could seem this idea that evil doesn't actually exist and that that's just a, a lie told by the devil. Because I hear that in, in New Age thought. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, Christian, Christian way of thinking on that particular question does have some nuance. Uh, you, will, you will find someone like Augustine saying that like, evil doesn't have an essence simply because it's defined over and against what is good. So it's constantly contrarian. But it's not the s. It does. It can never have its own substance because it's only a reaction to that which does have substance. Okay, so you have something good that God makes. That's substance, and then you only have its antithesis, which is in and of itself a non-thing. It doesn't have substance. It just is a perversion of. That would be one way of thinking it. A perversion of that essentially good thing. All right, but. As much as that may be helpful in some ways to think of, practically it's not that helpful. I think practically it's just much more grounded and earthy. If someone says, I don't think evil exists, to be like, well, that's like the most evil thing I've heard today. <laughs> right? <laughs> that's, a, that's a plain lie. And just to assert that, of course, evil exists, look at the world, look at the news, look at all of this. But then what Christianity has to say is that God recognizes that and is going to do something about that. And the two things he's going to do about it are, in the first place, call those who are evil to repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Because that's us. As soon as we're going to be appalled by evil, we have to, in truth, be appalled by ourselves. Otherwise, we're just heaping evil upon evil, the evil of 
wicked self-righteousness, right? So that's his first call. But his second call is, you know, this is why the Holy Spirit comes convicting of sin, convicting of righteousness, and convicting of judgment. Those three things. Convicts us, each one of us, of sin, so that as I want to condemn the evil in the world, I realize that I'm condemning myself. Convicts us of righteousness, which is ours in Christ alone as a free gift. And then convicts us of the impending judgment. That is to say that, you know, receive this free gift of God because the time is coming in which he's going to put evil to an end. And there's going to be a cosmic cleaning of house. That's already been done in the heavenly sphere. And all we're waiting for is for that to be done in an earthly sphere. But in the meantime, we can fight on assured of the victory and certain of the victory that when Christ comes, that's just it. It's, it's all swept away. You know, it's all, it's all done. It's a little bit like if you're a Lord of the Rings fan. It's the Battle of Helm's Deep, where you spend the entire battle losing, and the entire battle is try to lose slower, because the orc hordes are just pummeling you, and they're breaching the gates, and they're destroying everything, and you've got the women and the children back in the caves, and heroes are dying and about the last moment you're saying all right we're going to ride out to death and glory um who shows up on the hillside gandalf with uh, <laughs> risen from the dead of course and gandalf with a huge army who comes in and saves the day so you have uh Helm's Deep, the Battle of Helm's Deep works just this way. And it's a great analogy because what does it feel like? It feels like, I mean, I even said this to Vicar, like, I, I can't imagine having a ministry like other ministries have existed from time to time, pocket to pocket, where you actually feel like you're winning or gaining ground. <laughs> My entire ministry has been like, lose slower. <laughs> <laughs> and I think you can you can do that and and have great joy and great peace, even though it's you know uncomfortable, because you know that Gandalf is coming. You know that the the rider in white of Revelation nine is going to come. I look to the hills from whence cometh my help. My help cometh from the Lord. And in that moment, the victory's won. So all we have to do is endure and hold the line until then. So it's a way of losing, and that's why the author of Hebrews says we don't see everything under subjection to him yet while knowing that you're going to win and being confident in that then. Please. You just said we don't see everything um, in subjection to him yet. But as I read that verse in Hebrews 2, it it says we do not see everything, but we do see some things, don't Mm -hmm. we? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. I I was going to mention, you know, we see the, we know the wind is a force, but we don't see, see the wind, but we see the effect of it. And I think in the same way, we can see the effect of Christ's reign on earth when things that happen, we can't totally explain with natural law yet. Absolutely. And just to put it concretely, every baptism, every baptized Christian, every person who confesses the creed and believes it. I mean, these are miracles. You know, this is where Christianity just sometimes gets wacky of like, oh, you know, I, I, I I needed this sign or I saw that healing or this miracle. It's like, I've been seeing miracles all day. Anytime I see a saint, there's a miracle on a more grand cosmic scheme than any other miracle. Uh, a scale, I mean, than any other miracle. And here is someone who is being sustained over and against the principalities and powers of darkness and the devil and the world, their sinful nature, everything attacking them, and here they are enduring in faith. I mean, that 
that's where you know Peter will say that this is a, a gracious thing in God's sight, or really rather a precious thing in God's sight. God could care less about gold and diamonds and jewels. He could snap his finger and make those. But the most rare and valuable things on earth in the whole cosmos are his saints who are faithful even when they're quote-unquote losing or feel as though they're losing. They're enduring in the faith. And these are instantiations already of Christ and of his victory. Why a proud Satan hates Christians so vehemently is because every single Christian is a living, breathing testament of his loss, of his ultimate and eventual defeat that's complete and total. Yeah. So there's lots of ways in which we can say I think I think of every congregation that's preaching Christ and administering his sacraments as a corporate defeat of Satan and a miracle there in that place. I mean, I sometimes marvel when you look, and we can't take these things for granted. <clears throat> if you have a believing spouse or believing children, marvel and give thanks to God. If you have a faithful congregation that you can go to, marvel and give thanks to God. Uh, when you look at the world and the way it is in California, the way it is, and we're exa- able to exist here as this congregation here in this place, I, it's a it's nothing short of, of a complete act of God, a miracle, an intrusion of the Holy Spirit. You know, I, I'm not waiting for God to give me some vision. I already see it, and it's incredible, and it's amazing. Um, there's spiritually dead people walking all around us. I see spiritually raised, resurrected, everlasting saints gathered here every Sunday. It's incredible. I've never preached to less than myriads upon myriads because not only are the saints there, but the angels, archangels, and the whole company of heaven have gathered there uh, to join heaven and earth in our divine service. And that's a miracle too. So there are, there are many, many ways, if we have eyes to see, and I think that's your point, I really appreciate it, if we have eyes to see in which we can already see and perceive the reign of Christ. We just don't see everything. Yeah. Okay, that was a fun field trip. Almost, uh, almost done with the class. Let's, uh, let's just wrap up this thinking of Wolf Mueller and then on page 217. And we'll save for next week dispensationalism. He brings up three errors of dispensationalism. He brings up how to, and, and yeah, we'll introduce that as a concept uh, created in the 19th century. Then we'll talk about the rapture and revelation and wend our way to the conclusion of this chapter. So, page 217, right in the middle with that third full paragraph, Wolf Miller writes, Now let's revisit the 1,000 years of Revelation 20. Understanding from the scriptures how to read the 1,000 years and the binding of the devil, we see that the millennium begins with the death and resurrection of Jesus, and extends until his return. We are in the millennium, and we find ourselves in this text. We are those who have partaken of the first resurrection by our baptism, Romans 6, 3 through 4. And by the way, I know it's been like since last week that we looked at Revelation 20, but remember that confusing part about the first resurrection and the second resurrection? That's what this is speaking to. So we don't have time to do it today, but I encourage you um, to go back to the beginning of the chapter, look at Revelation 20, and then understand it in light of this paragraph. So we are those who have partaken of the first resurrection by our baptism, Romans 6, 3 through 4. 
We are those who rule and reign with Christ. Jesus had made us, his church, a kingdom, Revelation 1, 5 through 6. And by faith we are, quote, seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, Ephesians 2, 6. And in fact, truth be told, wherever we are, there are the heavenly places, properly speaking, because we are not citizens of this world. We are citizens of a heavenly kingdom, and we are ambassadors of that heavenly kingdom. And so where we are, we are emissaries, we are ambassadors, we are citizens. There that kingdom is extended. So that's, that's why I have no problem you know, saying that yeah, the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, Ephesians 2, 6, certainly we're not precluding heaven in the least, but those heavenly places have also come down to earth. Wolf Miller continues, What a comforting privilege. Indeed, all things are ours. For, and now he's quoting 1 Corinthians three twenty one through 23. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ's and Christ's God's. Then Wolfmuller comments, We do not yet see all these things, but we know them by faith, and when the last day comes, we will know them by sight. Rather than a description of a kingdom to come, the thousand years of Revelation is a beautiful and glorious description of right now. The spiritual reality of the church's victory over death and the devil and our privileged position as Christ's friends in his kingdom of grace. And it's true, we are... um, Right now we are suffering with him that we might be glorified with him. And so all of that's according to plan too. Everything's going exactly according to plan. All right. Um, that's why I think now it's why if we understand our eschatology, we can understand a lot of other things better. We can understand the politics of the world and our place in it and their importance better. We can understand um, the, the role that suffering and affliction and spiritual batter, battles have in our lives better. And we can remember that the ways in which we overcome, whether it's in the, um, or in the ways in which we appear to lose, we can perceive those things anew in light of the fact that we overcome the devil and his wicked friends through the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony in regard to Christ, so that even when we very much appear to be losing, we are in fact winning. And I think that that can, that can really help us and it can comfort us and it can give us a grounding and a way of looking at the world where we're not going to be subject to those who would place us into fear and then use that fear to manipulate us. And that, that maybe is one of the greatest kind of meta-threats of our age, whether it's in the kingdom of the church or the kingdom of the government where we're being instructed to be fearful and uncertain because fearful and uncertain people are easily movable just say here's what you have to do in order to survive 
and we go, oh, tell us. We'll, and we're already jumping before we're even told how high or how far. And Christians are in a unique position to be able to step back from that and be like, oh, we don't have any reason to fear. We're already... Um, by the way, that language of... Um, I've got less than a minute here, but that language of the gates of hell will not prevail against her, the church. Okay, let's be clear with what that imagery is. If you're already at the gates of your foe, you have already won many battles, you have already defeated their army, and you have them completely surrounded, and now is the siege. If we view the world this way, you can see that the gates of hell that Satan has set up here, if you will, are under siege. He has already been driven entirely out of the heavenly sphere. He's here, and he is daily being driven into that little hidey hole until he's finally kicked out of this world. And that's what it means. So we can go forth with confidence that, of course, the battle's fierce because this is his last toehold here on earth and anywhere other than what is ultimately the lake of fire. So, of course, he's going to fight tooth and nail. But we can't forget all the ground he's already lost, all the victories that have already taken place. And as we proclaim the gospel and administer Christ's sacraments here in this place, his kingdom gets weaker and weaker. And to, have, to be at the gates of Sony is also siege mentality. They're locked in there and time is not on their side. That's what it, if you're under siege, you can only last until your food and water run out or your fighting men run out. That's the image that Christ sets before us, that the devil is completely surrounded and under siege. And it's not really like food or drink or whatever that's going to run out. It's his time. But that's how the gates will not prevail against us. And we need to see that we're already in the final victory uh, and all we're waiting for is Christ to return, and that's it. So, again, just to say, even though sometimes it feels like we're losing and we're taking losses and the fight's really fierce and they're firing a bunch of arrows down from the gates at us and, you know, isn't that terrible and isn't that terrible, just don't lose the forest for the trees. Just because it's hot right here, right now, and we're taking some losses doesn't mean that we already haven't driven them, we being the whole army of God, we haven't driven them to this last little vestige and that that too soon will fall. Okay. That's it. That's the concluding thought. We'll see you all next week. The Lord be with you.